The month of August in South Africa is celebrated as Women's Month, more particularly with the 9th of August being celebrated as Women's Day. For this year's Women's Month, we thought it would be a good idea to discuss something which, for the moment, remains unique to the body of a woman, that of bearing children. Pregnancy is regarded as quite a risky period, so most clinicians feel like they're walking on eggshells when treating them. Get it? I made an egg joke! So MicroMail is having a two-part series on pregnancy-related infections, and I'm so excited to be joined by two very special guests in the MicroMail studios for this morning's recording. So I've got adjunct professor Shastra Bura, who is both an obstetric and gynecologist, as well as an intensivist at the Charlotte Matkeke Johannesburg Academic Hospital. And she's also a lecturer in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at FITS. I'm also joined by Dr. Jared Zamperini, who is a physician at Charlotte Matkeke Johannesburg Academic Hospital. And Jared has a special interest in obstetric medicine. And he's also a lecturer in the Department of Medicine. So thank you both for joining me today and welcome to MicroMail. Thank you very much for having us, Ben. Thanks for having us. Nice to be here. Awesome. Finally got you here. Yes. <laughs> Finally. Remember to sign up for updates on the MicroMail website, follow MicroMail on social media, and most importantly, help spread the word. MicroMail is available all over the world. So please remember to listen, like, comment, share or tag, and repeat. All the links are available in the show notes. So I don't know about you guys, but I'm really excited <laughs> to start this chat. <laughs> Ready to go? Let's go? Yes, let's go. Awesome. So first question we should probably start with is why is it important to talk about infections in pregnancy? So pregnancy is both an exhilarating experience, but it's also quite a vulnerable experience. Being a woman and a mother myself, I can honestly say that it is one of the most exciting times in your life, but it was the scariest experience too. I can agree with you. It puts a woman into an immune compromised state or into a state where the mother is not the priority anymore, but it's this growing fetus inside of her that mm. takes the priority. And you want the fetus to grow into a healthy child. And owing to the physiological and anatomical changes, the disease processes that are often associated with pregnancy that can be very dangerous are often overlooked or they can be missed. Yeah. Yeah. The immune changes are quite interesting, actually. Um, we know now there's not, there's not really a true immunocompromised state, mm. but there's a definite shift away from cell-mediated immunity, which makes pregnant women more susceptible to infections from intracellular organisms, such as listeria, salmonella, mycobacteria, and viruses as well. Right. And when we look at sepsis uh, specifically, it's contributed to maternal morbidity and mortality quite significantly, especially in our low resource setting. And non-pregnancy related infections, which would be ubiquitous to our community like TB and HIV, and now during the winter season being influenza, remain a challenge despite us having screening programs, testing patients and offering immunizations. Yeah, so non-pregnancy-related infections are the most common cause of maternal mortality in South Africa, accounting for about um, 27 per 100,000 maternal deaths in the 2017 to 2019 triennium. And if you look at the um, Saving Mothers report, it's more so in the district hospitals than in central hospitals, 
which really highlights the need for better diagnosis and screening as well as treatment um, of infections in pregnancy. Absolutely. And that was a really good way to, to introduce this topic and, you know, bring up and highlight the importance of, of the state of pregnancy. Um, so can we start maybe also by talking about what are the most common pregnancy-related and non-pregnancy-related infections in South Africa and, and also what might be related to other low- and middle-income countries? Okay, so I'm going to speak about the pregnancy-related infections. Okay. And then um, I'm sure Jared can come in with the non-pregnancy-related infections. Um, and essentially, in the pregnancy-related infections has to do with the actual pregnancy physiology itself. And so in the antenatum period and in the intrapartum period, the most common that we um, often treat is chorioamnionitis. Mm -hmm. And this complicates both the maternal and the fetal well-being. So on any given day, if you need to walk through our antenatal uh, ward, there are multiple patients being admitted for preterm labor or pre-labor rupture of membranes. And we have very high surveillance of chorioamnionitis in these patients. Unit tract infections as well as pervaginal discharge syndromes are diagnosed on a regular basis. Um, this often starts at the midwife uh, units or at primary health care. And often if they are recurrent or they are not treated with standard practices, then get transferred to secondary and tertiary facilities. And so we often get patients coming through to our hospital as high-risk pregnancies that have been complicated with preterm labor. And this often happens because of the anatomical changes of the pelvic floor, where the urethra is shorter and in closer proximity to the vagina and the anus, and the physiological changes where the pH of the vagina changes. So that natural flora of the lactobacilli that we have as protective mechanisms mm -hmm. are often not um, valuable in pregnancy because of the changes that occur to maintain the pregnancy itself. So those would be the antenatal and the intrapartum that we uh, ba basically are faced with. But what is more severe is in the puperial state where pupil sepsis seems to be one of the highest uh, morbidity and mortality precursors. And this was evident in the last uh, M&M that we uh, presented at the cluster meeting last week. And we found that at Charlotte itself, because of the periphery draining into a tertiary hospital, and like Jared's already mentioned, a lot of the infections happen in district uh, and regional hospitals. Our main mortality killer of pregnant women within the facility was pupil sepsis. Wow. And so it happens very frequently, more so with uh, patients that deliver at home mm -hmm. or are subjected to cesarean sections uh, in an emergency setting. And often there's a delayed presentation and identification that is delayed in terms of pupil sepsis often leads to significant morbidity and mortality. And this becomes very sad because we often end up with women losing their uteri or losing their lives and leaving their newborn babies behind. Yeah. But I suppose it's not all doom and gloom, though, because we, we're definitely doing better as a country um, when it comes to pregnancy-related infections because the number of deaths has declined in every reporting period since 2008. So, so there's a silver lining or, or some hope on the horizon. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's because it's become such an alert over the years that sepsis kills. Mm -hmm. And I think there have been good principles and practice into IPC measurements as well as antimicrobial stewardship where multidisciplinary teams can advocate for this vulnerable group of patients. Absolutely. So then for non-pregnancy-related infections, which, as, we, as we've mentioned, are the most common cause of maternal mortality, 
if you look at them as a whole, in, in the last reporting period, TB, PCP, and other pneumonias were the mm -hmm. most common cause um, of those non-pregnancy-related infections. They count for about two-thirds of them. Mm. And most women actually died from respiratory failure. So I think knowledge of pregnancy physiology and anatomy is important. You know, dyspnea and fatigue are common symptoms in pregnancy, and so they may be ignored um, when there's a life-threatening underlying cause that needs management. Mm. And HIV is also very important to consider. Close to 90% of women who died from a non-pregnancy-related infection were HIV positive. That's a scary number. Yeah, very scary. So should we talk maybe globally and about South Africa and what the common causes of death are? Jared, you've already alluded to some of those, but can we maybe elaborate a bit? So in South Africa, we've mentioned the non-pregnancy-related infections being the most common, but there is non-communicable diseases that also make up the remainder. And this becomes quite a reality, especially in our high-care setting, mm. where we see many patients who are admitted with hypertension, uh, with obstetric hemorrhage, either antepartum or postpartum, and then we have the medical and surgical disorders. And we also have a huge cohort of patients that are admitted into ICU from septic miscarriages or unsafe miscarriages that complicate into multi-organ failure. And so all of these components contribute quite significantly to maternal mortality. It's important to note that infections fall into these two categories, one of which being non-pregnancy related and the other being pregnancy related which together make up a maternal mortality rate of 33 per 100,000. In our institution, our last uh, IMMR, Institution Mortality uh, Maternal Rate, was close to 390 per 100,000, wow. which uh, essentially tells you how much we drain in from our own cluster, but how sick these patients are. Yeah. Early pregnancy loss is the fifth most common cause of death, uh, making up 7 per 100,000. And about half of these deaths are due to septic miscarriages. So if you add all the infectious causes of death, you end up just shy of 40% of deaths being due to infections alone. And, and globally, it's a very different picture. The most common cause of maternal death worldwide is venous thromboembolism. Uh, and really? a, yeah, venous thromboembolism, so PEs and DVTs. Wow. And the big issue is, if you look globally, about 85% of maternal deaths or the global maternal deaths occur in sub-Saharan Africa and, South, and Southern Asia. So it's a big difference between the sort of high-income countries and low to middle-income countries, where if you look at somewhere like the UK, the maternal mortality ratio or the maternal mortality rate is 8 per 100,000. And sepsis is the third most common cause of maternal death. But as much as this seems high at face value, if you then go further into the data, the maternal mortality rate from non-pregnancy-related infections in the UK is 0.09 per 100,000, and pregnancy-related infections is 0.37 per 100,000. So that's 10 women who died from infection-related causes compared to 1,084 in South Africa. And, and considering right. we have a million births per year and the UK has 680,000, it's clear there is a problem that we need to get on top of. Yeah, that is quite a scary problem we need to get on top of. Definitely. Um. So one of the biggest issues about diagnosing infections in pregnancy is that it's a bit of a diagnostic dilemma, right? Um, just the state of pregnancy and the difference in the physiology makes it tricky. Um, so what are the things that we need to talk about from this diagnostic perspective? 
So this becomes extremely difficult because mostly the symptoms or signs that patients relate are very vague. Um, symptoms like feeling tired, fatigue, um, having shortness of breath, having a slightly elevated heart rate, going to the bathroom very often or having a watery uh, vaginal discharge. All of these are in keeping with the physiology of pregnancy. However, they can also mimic other disease processes. And I think if a patient is repetitively presenting to a healthcare facility with any of these symptoms, they need to be evaluated and investigated. And so not all of the features can be within normal um, criteria for pregnancy itself. And that is why if we delay in terms of listening to our patients and observing what their signs and symptoms are, it can lead to a delay or a misdiagnosis. And so shortness of breath, tachycardias, fatigue, all of this can be linked to infections. And most often we end up seeing patients for the first time um, in their pregnancies. And that's why we end up making diagnoses of chronic conditions that they may have had. And so I am very um, adamant in terms of really valuing what a pregnant patient has to say to you so that you do not miss that she's actually sick and that it is a correctable uh, disease process. And then the pregnancy can continue on its healthy path. That's a good point you make because they otherwise healthy people who wouldn't have had to seek health care beforehand. Correct. Um, so that's a really important um, consideration for the clinicians to remember. So Shastra, in view of of what you said about PV discharge being common um, and sexually transmitted infections just being in that sexually reproductive age, um, what are the differences in terms of syndromic management that we should be looking at? So I think the most important thing, number one, is to have a diagnosis. I think the focus must be on the mum initially because a healthy mum means a healthy baby. But there are different nuances that we need to be cognizant of. And a lot of the treatment that you would treat with the PV discharge or a UTI can have teratogenic effects on the unborn baby. And so, for example, uh, aminoglycosides, we try not to give in pregnancy unless it's uh, crucial and the mom is in multi-organ failure. Then this needs to be a multidisciplinary team in terms of making decisions as to whether we would deliver baby before administering aminoglycoside. And this is because it causes renal abnormalities in the fetus, which can be quite detrimental, often leading to a whole host um, of complications once the baby is born. And ultimately, if that renal system does not get a chance to mature in utero, these babies can be affected with severe oligohydramniosis, and that can also lead to uh, pulmonary hyperplasias in these babies that subsequently die in utero. Tetracyclines, which we would use, for example, doxycycline for a PV discharge in any uh, reproductive patient that was not pregnant, can cause discoloration of both bones and teeth. And this can be um, also lead to very weak bones and teeth uh, in the fetus. And we may not see that evidently at birth, but as the child begins to grow, because it's been exposed to a tetracycline, that maturation of cartilage, bones, and teeth can become quite a significant impairment to these babies. Augmentin is something that's easily available at our hospital, and it's not something that needs motivation for. But I think within the pregnancy population, we really need to be cognizant that those mothers in their third trimester, especially those that are more than 34 weeks pregnant, 
Administering the clavulinic acid, which is a component of the augmentin, can cause necrotizing enterocolitis in the newborn baby. And there have been a landmark trials that we follow known as the Oracles 1 and 2 that looked at a whole host of antibiotics in terms of what would be the most benefit to patients who presented in preterm labor or those who were presented with preterm rupture of membranes and found that the azithromycin group uh, and the macrolides had better um, <clears throat> benefit to the baby in utero. And so we try not to give augmentin in the third trimester. However, if you can anticipate that this baby is not going to be delivered within a week and the sensitivity of the culture that has been uh, proven to uh, be treatable by the augmentin, this can be something that can be discussed with the fetal medicine team. Mm. And so I think we must be cognizant of that because it seems like it's so simple. If a patient's not allergic to penicillin, then uh, augmentin having more power over your other penicillins would be of benefit. But actually, to the unborn baby, it can be uh, quite detrimental. detrimental. Yeah. I think to, to contrast what Shastra is saying is the, the most recent Embrace report from the UK, which is their maternal mortality reporting, mm -hmm. um, has a really good point. I actually have this post up in my office, um, which is it says, treat women who may become pregnant, are pregnant, or have recently been pregnant, the same as a non-pregnant person, unless there's a very good reason not to. And I really like this because it highlights that pregnancy shouldn't scare you to an extent. You just need to avoid those really teratogenic medicines because essentially if there isn't a mom, there isn't a baby. So you need to weigh up the probably minor risks of giving a certain antibiotic with the real benefit of treating, of treating an infection. So, I mean, having said that, we do know that the antibiotics Shastra has mentioned are problematic and they usually are alternatives. But if you have no choice, you have to weigh up that risk benefit um, of the benefit of treating mom versus the risk to the baby. And then there's always people like you guys. So if people are not sure, they should just pick up the phone and consult with you. So Absolutely. I think that's, that's vitally important. I think we all are so worried about pregnant patients that we often shy away from the management. Right. And I think the more we come together as a team and learn from each other, it will actually benefit how we approach pregnancy and people will become more confident in terms of treating infections uh, in this group of patients. Right. And remembering that we're saving two lives, Correct. if not more, at one go. Absolutely. So let's talk pyelonephritis and what the clinical diagnostic dilemmas are, how laboratory diagnostics and imaging might help in a pregnant woman. So this becomes difficult because the clinical signs and symptoms are again in keeping with the normal changes in pregnancy. Mm -hmm. So a growing uterus is going to put strain on the ligaments that support it. And most often patients are going to complain of lower back pain or of iliac fossa pain. And so often the pyelonephritis aspect of the infective process can be masked because of the natural uh, anatomical changes. When it comes to imaging, it becomes technically difficult in a pregnant patient owing again to this growing baby and to the large uterus. So most often, because the kidneys, the ureters, and the retroperitoneum, you've got to position your patient in a way to be able to image it. But then you find features suggestive of hydronephrosis on the sonar findings, and this is a normal entity in pregnancy, uh, more so on the right than you would find on the left. And so inflammatory markers are not of great value in pregnancy, However, if you take everything within context of the patient and use them in conjunction, 
then we are able to risk profile patients and have a higher clinical suspicion uh, to treat these patients with a empiric antibiotic while specimens are being sent and definitive uh, cultures and sensitivities are available. Okay, so we're not, while we're in the pelvic area, we should be addressing chorea amnionitis, but we've spoken about that earlier. Mm. So let's move away from the pelvis and talk about, um, as Jared said, a lot of these women die from hypoxia and dyspnea and respiratory infections. Mm. So let's talk about community-acquired pneumonia in pregnancy. So, yeah, definitely, Vin. So we've already mentioned pneumonia accounts for two-thirds of deaths due to non-pregnancy-related infections. So it is important to touch on it again. Um, whilst dyspnea is a common feature of pregnancy, it should be worked up before it's just attributed to pregnancy alone. You don't want to go around saying, oh, shame, you feel short of breath, it's just pregnancy, don't worry about it. Yeah. Um, go home, come back if it gets worse. Um, and of course, uh, tachypnea and hypoxemia are not normal. So anyone who's breathing fast or has low SATs needs to be investigated. Mm. And luckily... The drugs recommended in the South African pneumonia guidelines are generally safe in pregnancy, bar the amoxicillin clavulanate at near term. But in that case, you can go ahead with a cephalosporin plus a macrolide as needed. And again, it, it comes down to risk benefit to the mom. If you have a severe pneumonia, you're hypoxemic, treat the mom because without mom, there is no baby. Yeah. I know that's a bit harsh to say, but it, but it really is true. No, it is yeah. absolutely true. Um. So we've touched on quite a few infections, but I think maybe this was probably the tip of the iceberg. And before I ask you both for a take-home message, you know, we normally have a spotlight feature on microbe mail episodes. And it's been a while since we've had a mini microbe message. So the two of you are lucky enough to listen to a very cute little girl. So hold on a second while I get that ready for you. Hi, my name is Mia Jackson. Did you know that bacteria are three and a half billion years old? That means they're older than plants, animals, and much older than people. They are the oldest form of life on Earth and can survive almost anywhere on the planet. I love that. Mia, thank you so much for your message. And if you're ever looking for a career, we always have posts open in Obzangaini. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a great message. Um, and I mean, I suppose at the end of the day, there's some good bacteria as well. And we What could... do you mean some good bacteria, Jared? Most of them are good. It's just a handful that are bad. <laughs> Fine. Don't, don't let the few bad ones give everyone else a bad name. I mean, I suppose bacteria are the only culture some people have. Absolutely. <laughs> So we've come to the end of our first episode. And before we go, can I get a quick take-home message from each of you? So I think from my side, um, in view that we work so closely with patients who become very sick or who die from sepsis, is that if we pick this up earlier, pregnant women are extremely resilient. So please never feel afraid to pick up the phone and ask for help. Yeah. Infections are still a common cause of maternal mortality in South Africa. And practitioners looking after pregnant women, and that's, that's anyone, that's mm. obstetricians, physicians, GPs, midwives, nurses. You need to be vigilant and treat sepsis quickly. And, and don't be shy to ask for help, as Shastra said, um, whether it's from a senior clinical colleague or from a microbiologist. Rather ask and realize you've done the right thing than don't ask and we have another home without another. Thank you both. Those were amazing messages. And 
To our listeners, stay tuned for part two on pregnancy-related infectious content. Until then, that's it from me, Vin, your Michael Messenger. See you again soon with more and Mail.